morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Dara, and I'm going to be reading Philippians 1, verse 19 to 30. Uh, that's today's sermon scripture reading. I'd encourage you to read along in your Bibles. Uh, if you're using the blue Bibles on your pew, you can find the passage on page 570. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Good morning again. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Ben. I serve, uh, serve as an elder here. Um, we are in week two of a series going through the book of Philippians, um, last week we looked at uh, Paul's joy, the joy that he had in being partnered with the Philippians, the joy that's available to us um, when we walk together as partners in the gospel. Um, today we're going to look at this, this passage that Dara read for us, the second half of chapter one. I'm, I'm going to focus on, on one thing, um, the statement that Paul makes at the beginning of verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of of the gospel of Christ. So we're, we're gonna focus on that, on that one uh, statement, and we're gonna do that by answering three questions. So three questions we're gonna look at um, from that, the beginning of that verse. Um, question number one, why should we make the gospel the central point of our lives? Uh, what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? And then how do we do that? How do we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? So that, that's where we're going today. The bulk of the time is gonna be on, on that second question of, of, of what it looks like to live this life. Um, before we get there, we're going to go back and start in verse 19 and, and just kind of talk through the lead up, uh, lead up to, this, to this central statement of this passage. Um, and if I, so I'm, I'm wearing a new shirt, Costco special, and the collar sits higher than I'm used to, so it keeps bumping my mic. So if I'm being weird with my shoulders, it's because I'm getting used to my shirt. So, um, All right, I'm going to pray, and, and let's dive in. Um, 
Father, thank you for thank you for your word. Thank you for the um, just just the clear encouragement that we have, the clear instruction that we have for how to live life together as a body, for how to live life um, as citizens of your kingdom. And just ask that that you will be here with us today. That you will you'll speak through me. Your spirit, um, Lord, will be very clearly heard today. That I will not get in the way, Lord, but that your words will come through. We pray in your name, Amen. All right, so. Philippians 1, uh, verse 19. So Paul says, um, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So talking to the Philippians, he's writing from prison. Um, he is, he's telling them, hey, I, I know that, that your prayer and the Spirit of God are going to help me. It's going to turn out for my deliverance um, through my imprisonment here in Rome. And it's interesting, he doesn't, he doesn't say, please pray for me. He says, I know that through your prayers. So Paul here, he assumes that this group of people have partnered with him. They're praying for him. He knows they are. There's just a, a confidence, almost like a um, calling him a little bit without saying, hey, will you? But just, I know that you are. I know that you're praying for me. Um, and he uses that word, word deliverance there. And the idea of deliverance here is not that he's going to be delivered from prison. He doesn't know that. Um, in fact, if we keep going, um, as it is, may your expectation and hope, I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, um, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So he obviously is not saying, hey, I'm going to be delivered from prison. You're praying for me. The Spirit's going to bring me out. He says, no, whether by life or death. So he doesn't know what's going to happen. Um, the idea of, of deliverance there is this idea of, of sanctification, the, the fullness of, of salvation, being sanctified and made like Christ. Um, so he's saying, I, I need courage. Your prayer is giving me the courage to stand firm. The Spirit of God is giving me the courage to stand firm because it is my greatest desire, whether I live or die, Christ will be honored. For, and this, this is the, the verse everyone knows, right? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Then he walks through the next few verses, kind of this, this internal argument he has with himself. Um, if I'm to live in the flesh, it means more labor, I can't pick. I'd rather go and be with Christ. He says, it's my desire is to be with Christ. That's far better. But to remain here is more necessary for you because God's using me in your life. And, and so he's, he, he's telling this, this internal turmoil that he feels of my life is about Jesus, submitting and following him, and it'd be so much better to just go and, and to be with him. But he recognizes the call that God has put on his life to be a witness, to be a teacher, to be a preacher. And so he's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to stay um, convinced of this. So convinced of to live as Christ, to die as gain, convinced that it's necessary for me to be here for you, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. It's like, all right, God, God has convinced me. There's more work for me to do here. Let's, let's go. Let's do this, right? So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. And then he gets to this statement, this verse 27. It says, only, right? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Um, the Greek word there for only means only, literally, that's, it just means only. If there's only one thing that you know, only one thing you remember, if in all of this entire letter, this is the only thing that you hear from me, let it be this one thing. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. See the connection there? So between for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, and then this statement. So I'm going to take it out all the middle. So verse 21 and then jump to 27. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Right. For me to live is, let your manner of life be. 
Paul is with all of this that he's been telling them of your prayers are strengthening me, the spirit of God is strengthening me, I have this inner turmoil of, of I want to be with Jesus but I want to be here with you. He's, he's, he's setting up to say, look, this, this is what I have found. Christ is all, Christ is everything and I want you to have that also. For me to live as Christ, only let your manner of life be worthy of Christ. Same thing that he did at the beginning when he said, I, I have so much joy when I think of you, when I remember your partnership in the gospel. He was telling them about all of the things, all of the joy that he had, all the things, the blessings that he had. And through that, just kind of that, that infectious joy, then the Philippians are able to experience that. We're able to experience that also. He's doing the same thing here. He says, this, this is what matters. This is what I care about. And this is what you should care about. It's not a commandment. Only let your man be worthy of the gospel. It's an exhortation, right? The the commandments we have in Scripture: Thou shalt not kill, you know, don't commit adultery, honor your father and mother. Commandments um, define sin for us, and those commandments come from from God directly. We don't we don't see Paul issuing new commandments. He issues a lot of exhortations, encouragements to live their life in accordance with the commandments of God. That word exhortation, I use that very specifically. Um, the definition from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, an, an exhortation is to incite by argument or advice or to urge strongly. So, so Paul is, as he's urging them strongly, hey, make, make your life about Christ. Um, there's a list, I have a list of, of some of the other just exhortations that we kind of see throughout this book. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. You shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Rejoice in the Lord, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, put no confidence in the flesh, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, don't be anxious about anything, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things, right? Those are all different exhortations we have throughout the book of Philippians, but all of them can be summed up in this only, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Those are the bullet points of what it can mean that we're gonna look at throughout the rest of this series, but this is the summary statement. This is the central statement. Let your manner of life be worthy. So, our first question, why? Why should we make the gospel central in our lives? Um, my parents and I have very different testimonies of our journey to Christ. Um, both of my parents came to know the Lord when they were late teens, early 20s, um, and then they were very committed to raising us in a home centered around the gospel, right? I, I don't know exactly when I like, accepted Christ. Um, I was baptized when I was nine. I remember some, some prayers and some changes when I was like six or seven. So I don't have a lot of, of memories of life before Jesus. Um, both of my parents do, right? They grew up in, in homes where they didn't know Jesus until, until they were older. My dad talks about this, um, this, this defining moment where one day he, he was reading the words, like, okay, yeah, these are these words, and then he... He was like, no, he's like, that, that was when I really like, accepted Christ because the next morning I opened the Bible and it was like everything was new for the first time. Like it came to life in ways that it never had before. Like the, the Spirit of God had, had opened my eyes to the truth of the Word. He has this, this conversion experience, this conversion story um, that I don't, I just don't remember. I appreciate not having all of the baggage that comes from life before Jesus, so I'm not, definitely not complaining about that. Um, but I don't have that same, kind of that, that same story. Um, so for me, when I think about, okay, why, why the gospel, I, sometimes it's easy, like it just becomes kind of like that's just a mundane thing, right? It's just, it's been part of my life, whatever. Um, at some point, I don't remember who it was, but at some point someone said, hey, 
try this. If, if you're having, having a hard time, try asking yourself, where would I be without Jesus, right? Look at your life, look at the things you struggle with, look at the, the temptations that you face, look at the desires of your heart. Um, play those out without the influence of Jesus, where would you end up, right? If you fully gave yourself to the pleasures of self, where would that put you today? That's the why for me, right? If not for Jesus, I would be chasing multiple women, addicted to pornography, trying to find some kind of weird fulfillment in out-of-bounds, self-satisfying relationship activity that always left me empty, right? Always wanting more. Um, If not for Jesus, I'd be arrogant and egotistical. My identity would be bound up in my success at work. It would be, I I would have hope in my bank account, um, right? And and there would never be any real peace and security because that number can never be big enough, right? If your hope is in your your finance, that, that number is never big enough. You always need more. That's the why for me, right? I still struggle with human weakness. I still struggle with sin. But the priorities of my life, the decisions that I make are not ruled by my human weakness. They're ruled by Christ. There, there's, there's a, Spurgeon talks about this cancer that the gospel removes, right? The, the human condition, the cancer of the human condition has been removed by the gospel and the blessings of God then replace that, the blessings of obedience. Um, D.A. Carson, a professor of, of New Testament and um, one of the founding members of the Gospel Coalition says it this way, put the gospel first. Brothers and sisters in Christ, such a valuation of the gospel ought not to be the exception among us, but the rule. We're talking about the good news that reconciles lost men and women to the eternal God. We are confessing the gospel that God himself has provided a redeemer who died, the just for the unjust to bring us to himself. Without this gospel, we are cut off without hope in this world or the next and utterly undone. Compared with this good news, what could possibly compete? Put the gospel first. That's, that's, that's the why. That, that's the why of the gospel. So now let's get to the what. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Um, as we try to answer that question, I think there, there are two Greek words from here that, that are helpful for us. Uh, the first is euangelion, which is the word that, that we translate into gospel, which is quite literally means God's good news. Um, the second one is a little hard to pronounce, politiumehi, I think. Um, to live as a citizen, to conduct oneself as pledged to some law of life. That is the same word that we get, uh, like, like politics, political, the same kind of root there is that word. So, um, so gospel, right? The good news, God's good news. So only let your manner of life be worthy of the good news of Christ, what we just talked about, okay? Then the phrase... Um, where that word polytumi comes in, let your manner of life be. So we, we have an entire phrase to translate that one word because there is no word in the English language that really gets at the heart of what that means. We don't, we don't have a single word. Um, it's a word that, that really is talking about the law of the land, the expectations of those who live there. We don't, we don't have a single word like that, and so this is, it's translated here for us as let your manner of life be. Another way of writing this could be Live your life in accord with the political expectations of your homeland, your country, and your city. Um, it's an idea that really gets at, at our citizenship, right? Um, 
verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul even talks about our citizenship being in heaven, and, and that, same, that same root word is used there as well to, to describe citizenship. The, it's a, another form of that same, same Greek word. So, if we were to rewrite this statement, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, we'd end up with something kind of like this, okay? Live your life in a manner that befits a citizen of heaven in light of the good news of Christ crucified for your salvation. Okay, but what does that mean? We know that the message of the gospel is that there's nothing we can do, right? We can't earn it. We, can't, we, we can never live to, to earn to be worthy of the gospel, right? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, right? The call to live a life worthy of the gospel does not mean we're required to live a life worthy of the love of God or the forgiveness of God, right? Salvation is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so what does it mean to live a life worthy of our heavenly citizenship? Um, on January 1st, 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Okay. It declared that all persons held as slaves are and henceforward shall be free. Um, two years later, two more years of fighting the Civil War, finally the Confederate States surrendered in April of 1865. Another two months after that, uh, Union troops arrived in Galveston Bay, Texas, the final state with slavery still in effect, um, with the proclamation of the news of the Union victory, the Emancipation Proclamation, right, and the more than 250,000 slaves in Texas were declared free. That's the holiday that we now know as Juneteenth. Those troops in 1865, making that trip into Texas, they were bringing the gospel of Abraham Lincoln, the good news of the end of slavery in the United States of America. The new law of their homeland said they were full citizens, equal rights and opportunities as everyone else. Now, did that mean that all of, these, all of these people that had been living under the bonds of slavery immediately knew exactly what it meant to live as a free citizen of this country? Of course not. They'd been held back from education. They hadn't been given opportunities. Um, the idea of freedom was, was a dream, but the reality was something they'd never experienced. There weren't any less intelligent it wasn't an issue of, of, of whether or not they were intelligent, it's just they just hadn't had the same opportunities to understand what it meant to live fully free in this economy. What the Emancipation Proclamation meant, what the gospel of Abraham Lincoln meant, was that the identity of every former slave instantly changed. Right? At that point in time, Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution contained what's known as the three-fifths clause. Any person who was not free was only considered three-fifths of a person for determining the population, taxation, representation, those types of things, right? The law of the land stated that you are less than human. You are three-fifths of this white person over here, right? On January 1st, 1863, the laws of our country for the first time viewed this entire demographic of people as fully human. No one has to explain that that's good news. Right? You, just, you understand that, right? Nobody had to explain that being considered fully human is a good thing. Overnight, their core identity in this country changed, not because of anything they had said or done, but because of the gospel of Abraham Lincoln. You who were once slaves are now free. You're full citizens of the United States. Don't return to your former owners. Go forward and live a life in a manner worthy of your freedom. Right? You've been given this gift. You've been given this new identity. Go and live it out. That's, that's the idea, right? That's the idea of living a life worthy of the gospel is that we've been given this new identity. We've been given this, this freedom. Go and live it. Don't go back to the old ways. Don't run backwards, right? Just like um, for those people uh, 200 years ago, 
they needed some education, they needed some help to really understand what it meant to function in the United States economy as a free citizen, right? God, Paul, they know the same thing. They know that um, we don't, we have the idea, but we don't understand what it completely means to function in God's economy as a full and free citizen of Jesus. Okay, so, verses 27, 28, let's go back in there. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. So, um, Bible, the Bible is full of, of ideas and exhortations, encouragements for what it means to live as a citizen, but this right here, right after this, this transformational statement, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, there are four things that we see that mark a citizen of heaven. The first is standing firm in our faith, striving for our faith, fearless in the face of opposition, and then united with one another in the gospel. So that's, that's what we're gonna kind of walk through here now. Um, so first, standing firm in our faith. Um, back at the beginning of June, um, Seattle Classical Christian School, they had uh, their, their end of the year field day, right? I took the day off of work, I went and volunteered, helped out, helped them play some games and things like that, doing different competitions. And um, at the end of, of a field day, they did a, a tug of war between some of the different grades. And then they said, hey, um, are there any parents that want to come up against the fifth and sixth graders? Like, <laughs> tell me I can put some 12-year-olds in their place? Absolutely, I will take part of that. Um, so we, so yeah, yeah, so I jumped up, they, yeah, let's go, let's go be part of the tug of war. A lot of the parents went up, they started grabbing the rope. I walked straight to the back. I picked up about three feet of rope, put it right here, wrapped it around and grabbed it here, planted my feet, and I can't even lean back far enough, I'd fall over. I mean, I was like, I'm ready. I am planted, I am firm. As soon as this thing starts, I'm using my leg muscles and I just get a boom, that's it. That's the idea of standing firm, right? We're planted, we're secure. We're secure in, in, with some confidence in the source of that security, right? For me, the source of security was everyone else pulling on the rope, so it probably wasn't the best, <laughs> best source of security. Um, but, but it's solid. Standing firm is, is to be solid in the face of opposition. Right? Our feet are planted. We know what we believe. We, we're, we're firm in that. We know why we believe it. We, we've grabbed a hold of that rope. We've wrapped it around our bodies. We are committed to it. We're leaning on it. We're standing firm in our faith. It's the first, the first marker of a citizen of heaven. Right. So four things that mark a citizen of heaven. Standing firm. And number two then is, is striving. So the idea of, of striving is more of an offensive word, right? Pressing forward, going on the attack. Standing firm is playing defense, right? I'm, I'm standing there with the rope. Striving was everyone else that were yanking on the rope. They're playing offense. I'm back here. I'm, I'm going to keep it anchored. Everyone else, yank. Let's go, okay? Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So we're striving for the faith of the gospel. How do we strive for faith? Okay, how do we strive for faith? What's the opposite of faith? Okay. Fear, doubt, insecurity. Right. So we have faith in the gospel. So we have faith in the good news. We, there's, no, there's no fear, there's no doubt because of our faith in the good news. But we have to strive for that. Okay, strive, strive to believe. Jesus brought the good news. We're called to believe it, but not just believe the initial, hey, the, the initial transforming work in our spirit, but, but the ongoing belief in, in the news of, of God, the news of Christ, that his promises are real. 
that he is the source of, of true joy, that our identity is secure in him, right? Believing the good news that God is who he says he is, striving for our faith. Um, in the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis 3, when Satan tempted Eve, he did so by introducing doubt, right? If we go back to, back to this story, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So it's the first, the first thing where he's casting doubt. Did God really say that? He's, he's challenging the commands of God, challenging the truth of God. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, which he did not say, I'll get to that in a second, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So right there, just complete contradiction. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, so first, first Satan made Eve doubt the command of God. Did God actually say that? Then Eve's response was, yeah, we can't eat it and we can't even touch it, which God just said don't eat it. He didn't say don't touch it. So there's the, she's already confused, right? There's, there's a little bit of, okay, there's a lack of, of knowledge, lack of understanding, lack of that being planted and firm and knowing the commands of God. And so then he jumps on that and he challenges God's character, right? He says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. So he's saying, look, he's trying to hold you back. So it's just a flat out lie. He's trying to hold you back from becoming like him. Okay, in that moment, Satan introduced doubt. Eve's faith was shaken and we know the rest, okay? A citizen of heaven strives for the faith of the gospel because doubt is gonna come. There's gonna be temptation, there's gonna be challenge, there's gonna be doubt. We have to strive for that faith, strive to know and understand who God is, strive to believe that, strive to, to build those things in our hearts, strive to memorize, strive for those things. We're going on the offensive so that when those things come, we can fight back. Not just, not just take it, but fight back, right? When Jesus was taken out at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was taken out to the, to the wilderness. He fasted for 40 days, was about as physically weak as a human can be, and that's when Satan came and tempted him, right? Satan came and tempted him, challenged him, and Jesus responded by quoting scripture. He responded with his sword. He responded by, you know, this, this is what's true. This is what's true. This is what's true. He was, he was telling him the promises of God. He was telling him those things. Whether he was doing that to remind himself, doing that to fight back, both, whatever it was, he was fighting because he had, obviously he's the son of God, but through the course of his life, he had, had been preparing for that. He had been striving for his faith in that regard so that when it came, he was ready. Four things Mark says in of heaven, standing firm, striving, and then fearless, fearless, okay? Paul says that we are, are not frightened in anything by our opponents. We have a lot of opponents. <laughs> um, just as a human, forget, forget Christianity for a minute, just as a human living in this world, there's a ton of stuff to be afraid of. Right? You read the news, there's wars, there's shootings, there's bankruptcy, there's COVID, there's Taylor Swift messing up traffic for two days. I mean, there's a lot of things to be afraid of. Um, and then you add in, add in our Christian faith. In a city like Seattle, I, I mean, it just makes you want to hole up in your house, right? And just hide, kind of bunker down. A citizen of heaven, Paul says, a citizen of heaven is not frightened in anything by your opponents. We live without fear. Our citizenship is, in, is not on earth, right? our citizenship is in heaven. So we know I'm okay, 
right? Look, look at the Old Testament. Look at, at the people of God. They spent year after year after year in exile, in slavery, wandering the desert away from home. They learned to live as, as sojourners. They learned to live as exiles, as visitors, knowing that their true citizenship, their true citizenship was in the promised land, right? We can live fearlessly because we know that this is not our home. We are exiles on earth. We are described as exiles on this earth, and our true citizenship is waiting for us in heaven. Right. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What do you do with a person like that? They said, yeah, if I die, it's better. I actually would, would prefer that. There's, I mean, what, the, worst, the worst thing that could happen to us is to suffer some horrible, degrading death like Jesus did on the cross, to, to be beaten and imprisoned like Paul was. And Paul continued to preach the gospel. He continued to pray and praise because he's like, yeah, at the end of the day, if I'm dead, it's better. So, because I'm going home. What, if you're fighting someone that has no fear, what, what do you do with that? You can't, there's nothing to do. You just have to, okay, right? Fearless faith in the promises of God. Fearless faith in the gospel is a mark of a citizen of heaven. And finally, unity. United with one another, I'm going to read again, so verses 27, 20, read those again, and, and just listen for the marks of unity here, right? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not finding anything by your opponents, right? One spirit, one mind, side by side. We are called to do this together. We're called to do this united, right? Standing firm in our faith, playing defense when the attacks come, striving for our faith, attacking the lies of Satan that caused doubt, fearlessly united with the Christians around us, right? In, 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 that, in that tug of war, yes, there's a bunch of fifth and sixth graders, but if, if I was the only person on the rope, I would have lost, right? It doesn't matter how, how strong I am, I'm throwing all 180 pounds of me in, into this fight with all these other kids that would love to see me fall on my face. If I was by myself, there's no way I'm winning that, right? We need each other. Um, we need each other. I really wanted to have this really great football metaphor right here. Um, when, I was, when I was actually preparing for this, uh, John Piper, teaching the dead on him, he, he even said that it's like, oh, it's like offense and defense on a football team. It's like, oh, this is perfect. This is the time. Um, I actually had to cut it last minute because I just I was out of time and I want to talk more about the Bible than the Chiefs, even though they're, you know, whatever. Um, but I cannot fail the responsibility of the pulpit, so Chiefs rule, Seahawks rule. There we go. <laughs> uh, what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? It's a united community of faith that not only stands firm in the face of opposition, but goes forward into the world spreading the good news of Christ fearlessly. That's what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So how do we do it? Okay. Last question. How do we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? How do we do this? Um, I had a chance on Friday, just a couple days ago, to, uh, to chat with Joe Lednicki. I don't know if some of you, some of you know that name. Um, if you don't know them, Joe and Kendra, they were part of ICON for a couple of years. Joe was an elder candidate. He and Kendra led the Central District Community Group for a period of time. Um, they owned a gym not far from here. Um, it was more than just a place to go work out. It became this, this super tight-knit community of people. Um, Justin Anderson, our founding pastor, was regularly was at that gym. He's a part of it. Um, 
and, and the three of them, Joe, Kendra, and Justin, were, were very vocal about their faith. Everyone knew that Justin was pastor at Icon. Everybody knew Joe and Kendra came here. Um, that, was, that was just how they lived. It was really amazing. Joe and Kendra were very committed to being fully engaged in that neighborhood, right? Rubbing shoulders with loving every person that came through their doors. Um, they were starting to look for a house, right, ready to get planted. And then a couple years ago, everything changed really, really fast. Um, one of the coaches that Joe and Kendra employed went back into Icon's old sermons and found one that Justin had preached on marriage and sexuality. Um, one of the things that's really important to know is that their gym really represented the demographics of the neighborhood they were in, um, both in the staff they employed and the members that worked out there. Um, over half of their staff and members um, identified as part of, of the LGBTQ community. So then for them to hear a sermon on a biblical view of marriage, talking about one man and one woman for one lifetime, God created mankind male and female, it's like, oh, we don't, we don't agree here. So that, that coach reached out to Joe and Kendra and said, hey, do you believe this stuff? Um, and then over the course of the next three weeks, they had multiple long conversations with a lot of different people in the community, talking about their faith, and at the same time, talking about just the call they felt to love this city and to be here and to live here. Um, word spread through the community, the message that went out was not what Joe and Kendra hoped, it was, it was that they were not safe people and that they needed to shut down their gym. And there was a campaign launched to shut them down. Um, they, they started to receive, everyone started to quit, members started to cancel and demand their money back, um, business was in trouble very quickly, and then a couple weeks in, things really turned and they started to get like threatening emails. Some, some of the meanest and nastiest things you ever read started to show up in their email inbox. Um, from, and these were the people that they had been working with and living with. They helped each other move. They would greet each other with hugs. They shared life together. Um, and the hatred got so bad to the point that they started to get threats and actually had to leave because they had, had a young son, Judah, at the time, and they had to get out of the city because they were not safe to be here. So they ran, um, literally ran to Boise to be with, with Kendra's family to find a place of safety and to kind of take a breath and understand what is going on, right? This was all in the course of three weeks incredibly, incredibly fast. Um, while they're in Idaho, right, they made the decision, we have to sell the gym. So they sold the gym, um, and they ended up staying there. Uh, actually, talking to Joey, said it was, again, kind of God's timing and things. They didn't know Kendra's family was going through some really hard things right around that same time. So they made the decision, hey, we're going to stay because our family needs us. Um, and so they have planted there, and they're still there. Um, and they're doing great, by the way. I'm happy to talk about it, but Joe... Joe's working for a church as a director of outreach, and Kendra actually is running a gym again. Um, so they're doing really, really well in Idaho now. Um, but they were, like I said, they were at the point, they were looking for a house. They were, they were going to plant. They had this community, and in the course of three weeks, everything just flipped on them. It was insane. Some of you were here for that, right? Many of you were, they were in community group. You kind of felt that suddenness, kind of this, what just happened, the whiplash that kind of came with that. There was, there was a lot of confusion. Um, as a church, right, we suffered as a result of that. We lost two really incredible people. Um, our community group was left kind of in, in a weird limbo without a leader. Um, Joe was, was, was an elder candidate at the time, would have been a fantastic leader of this group. Um, right? They suffered, we suffered, there was persecution, um, purely because they were living in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's it. Nothing they said or did, just because they were believed what they believed. Um, but that's promised, right? Christian life is not for the faint of heart, especially in a city like Seattle. Right? Verses 29 and 30, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have 
Christ was mocked, beaten, bruised, and crucified. Paul was arrested, beaten, imprisoned multiple times through the course of his ministry. The Philippian people, Paul says, hey, you are, you're joining me in this. The Philippians, we know, then are, were arrested and imprisoned, likely even put to death for their faith. When we live as citizens of heaven, this is what comes. Suffering comes because, Paul says, because it's a sign to our opponents of their destruction. So knowing that, how do we do it? How do we do this? That was one of the questions I asked Joe. I said, hey, man, how, that was obviously a very short time, a very, very focused time. How, how, did, you, how did you walk through that that way? And um, what he told me is that they didn't have to make the decision to stand firm in the midst of that persecution because they had already made that decision a long time ago. They had considered the reality of being a Christian in the heart of Seattle, living, working, owning a gym in the community they were in, and they knew, hey, this is a possibility. This is a very real possibility for us to face something like this. They didn't expect it to be quite so fast or quite so intense, um, but they knew that, that something was likely coming. God promises that we're going to suffer and be persecuted. So they had already planted themselves. They were standing firm, striving together for the faith, said, no, we are, we are here. This is what we believe. So when it comes, there's no question. There's no question. The only question is how we respond. But the core of who we are, identity as citizens of heaven, that's not going to shake. That's not going to move. Okay. So how do we imitate that? Right? How do we imitate that life? The life that, that Paul says of to live as Christ, to die as gain. The, what, what Joe and Kendra walked through and continue to stand firm in that regardless of what was coming. How do we imitate that? So um, four things. So first, we aren't meant to do it alone. Okay. We're told to stand firm in one spirit, one mind, side by side. Read back um, at the beginning of the section, we talked, Paul talked about how the, the prayer of the Philippians was strengthening him. I mean, this is the most famous Christian of the day saying that, hey, your prayers are helping me. Right? Paul needed that help. He needed that support. Um, unity around Jesus, unity around the gospel, a strong community of Christians walking together, arms linked. Right? Talking about childhood games, tug of war. Did, did anybody ever play Red Rover growing up? Right? Super ridiculous, like, hey, let's all clothesline each other. It's a terrible game. Um, but, that, but that's the idea, right? right? Our arms are linked. Yeah, send it over. Bring it. Bring it. We're going to knock you down, right? We're, we're firm together. Um, second, know what you believe. Okay, if we're going to stand firm and strive for the faith of the gospel, we have to know what our faith is in. Again, if our faith is in ourselves, our faith is in, is in our money or whatever it is, um, or if our faith is solely in community, what happens when we face it alone, right? Joe and Kendra had community here, but really this attack was, was focused at them. If they, if they weren't firm in their faith in Jesus, their faith in the gospel, encouraged by their community, I, it would have knocked them down, right? If our faith is solely in the people around us, what happens if your job takes you to another part of the country? Right? What happens if this person you trust hurts you? Our faith has to, be, has to be firm in the gospel, supported by community, and then we have to train for the battle now. If we wait to train until the day the battle starts, you're walking into the fight unprepared. Can you imagine like, like a Navy SEAL being deployed? Like, okay, this is my rifle. As they're taking gunfire, that would be insane. It doesn't work, right? The sword of the spear is the word of God. Read it. Memorize it. Know it. If there are areas of your faith that you struggle with, ask somebody about it. Don't do it alone. Someone else struggles with that too. Someone else has, has not only struggled with that, but have, have found answers for it. If there's a temptation in your life that always gets you, that, that one thing that when it comes around, you, you give into it time and time and time again, get some help, get some support, get some accountability. We are all human, we're all weak, we need each other. 
We need to walk together in that. Train for the battle today, right? Attack those vulnerabilities. When we leave the vulnerabilities of our life exposed, the enemy will exploit them, right? Eve revealed a vulnerability. She, she kind of twisted, wasn't firm on, on what God had actually commanded her, and Satan jumped on it and just told her a flat-out lie, and she believed it. He got her to a place of weakness and then jumped. Okay. Fourth, finally, know your opposition. When I think about the Lednicki story, knowing who they are, the people they are, and how much hatred was thrown at them, it makes me so angry at the people that did this to them. Okay. Jesus commanded us, didn't suggest, he commanded to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That was the other question I asked Joe. I was like, hey man, how... How have you guys been able to, to process that? How have you been able to, to do that? Um, he told me, he's like, man, honestly, today, if one of them reached out, wanted to be reconciled, we would like joyfully run to them. We would love to do that. I was like, okay, but how? Um, so he told me, I said, as, as they have processed this together, the emotion that continues to come back around is compassion. These people were their friends. Like I said, they were, they were close. They've been walking together for a couple years. This gym survived COVID because this community came to me. I said, you know what? I'm going to increase. They, they were offering, they had to offer like more private classes to maintain social distancing. And said, yeah, the, the members of the gym, any of them that could, like signed up for more private classes because they wanted to see this thing go. This, this community had come together to push and fight and, and see this business survive COVID. And then in the course of three weeks, they flipped on them. They said, man, we just have so much compassion because they just, they're searching for something. They don't know what it is. Um, if they, if they were that, that quick to flip on us, there's something else much deeper wrong there. It's not, not just who they are. It's not, not who they are. It's just something happening. Um, one, one, of the, kind of, kind of one of the leaders of that, of that group at one point told them that, hey, there's nothing you guys have ever said or done to us that's made us feel unsafe. It's purely what you believe. I'm like, okay. We've done everything right, and, and you still just cannot, cannot function with us. Like there is, there is something so much more broken about that situation than just this anger that, that they feel against us. And so they just have been moved to, to compassion. Um, he said one of the, one of the quotes uh, from C.S. Lewis that really has helped him in this, from C.S. Lewis' book, Mere Christianity. It's a little bit of a longer one, but super, super helpful in this. Um, I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate a bad man's actions, but not hate the bad man. Or as they would say, hate the sin, but not the sinner. For a long time, I used to think this this a silly, straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself. However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I went on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated things was that I loved the man. The reason why I hated the things was that I loved the man. Just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those things. Consequently, Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred we feel for cruelty and treachery. We ought to hate them. Not one word of what we have said about them needs to be unsaid, but it does want us to hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves, being sorry that the man should have done such things and hoping if it is any way possible that somehow, sometime, somewhere, he can be cured and made human again. That's how we, we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute them because they are just 
not, not a victim of circumstance, but they are walking out life without the influence of Christ. Know your opposition. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Praying against the true opposition, right? Satan, sin, and evil in the world. We are called to live life together, citizens of heaven, fearlessly united, standing firm in our faith, striving side by side, and doing all because of the one who has given us our citizenship. That's why we finish, that's why we finish every week with communion. Right? This, this reminder of the source of our citizenship, the source of the identity that we have. Right? The, the gospel of Christ made clear, made, made tangible through the practice of communion. The bread representing his broken body, the juice representing his blood shed for us. So we're, we're gonna transition and, and we're, gonna, we're gonna celebrate communion together. We're gonna remember that together. We're gonna have a moment of silence just, just to reflect and to pray. If there's anything that you need to, to confess to God or you need to ask of him or, or you need to, to worship him for, you use that time just to do that and then as you're ready, come, come forward and receive um, as, as we step into communion, I want to read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're a God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father, thank you for mercy. Thank you for citizenship. Lord, thank you that, that we are a chosen race, that we are a royal priesthood, that we are a holy nation, a people for your own possession. Lord, help us to, help us to remember that. Help us to live that. Help us to, to recognize that we are temporary on earth. This is not our forever home, Lord, that, that life with you is our forever home and so that we can walk forward fearlessly united, standing firm side by side, striving for the advance of the gospel in Seattle and across the world. Thank you for the sacrifice on the cross that makes all of these things possible. We pray in your name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.